Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. How's everybody doing today? <laughs> the voice of an angel, I'm told. The voice of an angel. Um, so, got an awesome show for you today. Got a long show for you today. I actually just recorded some other stuff that will eventually pop up on the Secular Talk YouTube channel. Um, so, next week, there will be no... No shows. I'll still be uploading stuff on the YouTube channel, but there will be no shows because I will be in Austin, Texas. I'm going on uh, Joe Rogan's podcast. So um, obviously be a wee bit busy and won't be in studio. But again, I'll find ways to upload some stuff. And I already recorded a bunch of extra stuff that will drop for you guys while I'm gonzies. But yeah, so just a little program note before we jump into it. Um, But I have to tell you guys, today I am over the moon, excited about what we have lined up for you. Today's show is jam-packed full of smoking hot nuclear spicy takes. Some of the spiciest of the spicy takes. I really think that uh, you're going to love it, but also at the same time, you're low-key going to hate it because some of my takes, will you'll probably disagree with me, but that's fun. That's all, you know. It's, it's par for the course, baby. Can't expect to agree with anybody 100% of the time. All right, so uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. Um, oh, God, there's so much material to pull up on this one here. Let me pull up all of my extra notes because I, I literally could cite numbers to back up this story all day, all day. So let me get to – there we go. Okay. Let's do it, baby. An absolute bombshell of a story dropped the other day. It's from ProPublica, and they did some phenomenal investigative reporting, and they found that rich people 
mega, mega rich people are basically dodging all of their taxes. So they title it The Secret IRS Files, Trove of Never-Before-Seen Records Reveal How the Wealthiest Avoid Income Tax. Okay. So um, they talk about this thing that they call a true tax rate, which means it's kind of like the real tax rate, the effective tax rate for the people who are like the fraction of the fraction of the top 1%, the mega billionaires. And it turns out they're getting away with highway robbery and paying less than everybody else and their mother. So first, let me show you the chart here that they give us. This is really the meat of the information. So Warren Buffett, between the years, I think it's 2014 and 2018, Warren Buffett had his wealth grow by $24.3 billion. Now, in that time frame, he only reported income of $125 million, so his total taxes paid was just $23.7 million. So the percentage of tax that he paid is just 0.10%. Jeff Bezos, his wealth grew by $99 billion in that time frame. He only reported $4.22 billion in income. He paid $973 million in taxes which gives him an effective true tax rate of 0.98%. Michael Bloomberg made $22.5 billion in that time frame. He reported $10 billion in income, so total taxes paid was $292 million, which puts his true tax rate at 1.30%. And then you have Elon Musk here. He reported, or excuse me, his wealth grew $13.9 billion. His total income reported was $1.52 billion. He paid $455 million in taxes. And so his true effective tax rate was 3.27%. So the bottom line is this. They have an army of lawyers and specialists who work day and night to find the legal loopholes to make it so they pay as little as humanly possible. Now, beyond that, there's this legal distinction that's made between income and wealth growth. And, in fact, there was a Supreme Court case a long time ago where the Supreme Court decided, yeah, your wealth growth isn't taxed. Your income can be taxed, but your wealth growth isn't taxed because it's not really yours until you cash out, until you sell it. And that set up a situation where many wealthy CEOs, what they do is they'll say, like, oh, I'm only taking a salary of the median or average U.S. salary of $70,000 a year. And so they try to make it seem like, see, I'm doing all this work, and I'm doing it for basically nothing. I'm only taking $70,000 a year. Some of the guys on this list say my salary is only a dollar a year. So, but that's a trick. That's a trick is what that is. What they're doing is they're finding ways to avoid paying taxes, even though their wealth is growing exponentially. Their wealth is growing by tens of billions of dollars but they're not taxed on it. So let me give you some more information about this because this stuff is out of this world. By the end of 2018, the 25 wealthiest Americans were worth $1.1 trillion. For comparison, that would take 14.3 million ordinary American wage earners put together to equal that same amount of wealth. So 25 billionaires here 
it would take 14.3 million ordinary Americans to equal that same amount of wealth. Get this, the personal federal tax bill for the top 25 billionaires in 2018 was 1.9 billion. The bill for the wage earners, 143 billion. There are even years where these billionaires paid nothing in taxes, and there was even a year, I think it was 2011, where Jeff Bezos got a rebate from the government. He got like $4,000 for his kids or something like that. And it's not just him. There's many of them have a bunch of years. I think Warren Buffett was another. He paid nothing in income tax. George Soros paid nothing in income tax for some years. Or excuse me, paid nothing in federal taxes for those years. There's a great chart. I don't think I have it pulled up here. But your average American between 2014 and 2018, they paid more in taxes then their wealth grew in that period. Your average American paid more in taxes than their wealth grew in that period. Whereas these guys, the exact opposite. They're paying nothing in taxes and their wealth is just skyrocketing. So, I mean, stop and think about the system that we've set up here. We've set up what's effectively a regressive tax system which means the wealthier you are, the lower your effective tax rate is. We've always talked about this in the context of what's called the capital gains tax. For those of you who don't know, capital gains is if you invest in the stock market and you make money from your investments, that's taxed at a much lower rate than your, if you actually work for a living. So if you work for a living and you pay the income tax, let's say you make like $80,000 a year. I don't know exactly what bracket that puts you in, but it's like 15 or 20% or 25%. The capital gains tax was 15% for the longest time. I think now they – did they move it up a little bit? I don't remember. But the capital gains tax rate is lower than the income tax rate for average or slightly above average earners. So in other words, like there's the classic example, when Mitt Romney was running against Barack Obama in 2012, Mitt Romney didn't want to release his taxes for the longest time. Now, eventually he did. But the reason they want to release it is because he was paying 15% on – I think it was tens of millions of dollars in income. And, you know, you could be, if you're, if you're like, if you're somebody who does well, let's say you make, you're a physical therapist and you make like $120,000 a year or something like that. That physical therapist is paying more in taxes on $120,000 in income than Mitt Romney is on tens of millions of dollars in his income. Oh, but it's different because his income is capital gains which means he gambled for a living to make that money, so he gets to pay less in taxes. How does that make any sense? By the way, doesn't that incentivize not working? Right? Wouldn't you want to incentivize wage labor? You should tax it less? But no, they flip it on its head. Why? Because it's the wealthy. The people who already have money are making more money through the stock market, so it's like, okay, let's tax them much lower. By the way, an astonishing fact, that you learn in this phenomenal piece from ProPublica, and everybody needs to check it out. Did you know that now the IRS has been destroyed in a thousand different ways, but now the poor are more likely to get audited than the rich and corporations? What? The poor are more likely to get audited than the rich and corporations. 
If you're a multimillionaire or a billionaire, you're less likely to get audited than some schmuck who's making 30 grand in Alabama. What? You want to talk about a fundamentally broken system. The 400 richest Americans have more wealth than the bottom 150 million combined. So that means that about 400 of the richest Americans almost have more than half of the country combined. This is where we are now. There was that report that came out a few years back, which found for the first time, effectively, you had billionaires paying a lower tax rate than the working class. So this is, I mean, this really is out of this world. This is as bad as it gets. And I want to give you another fact. This came out a day later um, from Public Citizen, but the 55 largest corporations paid $0 in federal corporate income taxes in 2020 and spent $450 million on lobbying and political contributions in recent years. The 55 largest corporations paid zero in federal corporate income tax. So, I mean, listen, we got, I could go on and on all day about how rigged the tax system is against regular people. But, of course, the response from many of these billionaires, the ones who responded, some of them didn't even respond, but the response from many of them was, hey, listen, I'm, I'm paying whatever I legally have to pay. And so if it's 0.1% or if it's 1.5% or if it's 3%, shut the fuck up and take it. It's the best you're getting out of me. Isn't that amazing? People are phenomenally wealthy. They have more money than you can spend in a fucking lifetime. And they're defending paying that incredibly low rate because, hey, I have a team of lawyers and a team of experts, and we find ways to legally pay no taxes. So listen, we're, honestly, this is a joke. And even the types of reforms that we're talking about wouldn't necessarily address the problem. Like if you raise the top marginal tax rate from 35% or 37% to 39%, that doesn't address this. Because again, that's the top marginal tax rate for income. Well, if they're not taking a lot of income and it's all through wealth growth, what we need is a wealth tax. And all you have to do is take like 2% or 3% of their net worth, and then they're paying way more. Because 2% or 3% of their net worth is a lot of money, especially when you're talking about, you know, there are reports that Bezos might be a trillionaire by, I forgot when the date was. Is it like a decade from now or something? A trillionaire. So listen, if you look at these facts and you're not in favor of redistribution of wealth and steep taxes on the wealthy, I don't know what to say to you. I think you have your head firmly planted in your ass. I mean, and this is on top of the Rand Corporation study that I always reference on this show, which um, proved that from the 1970s until today, top fraction of the top 1% has stolen $47 trillion from the bottom 90%. So if you just kept the pay ratio and, and the wealth distribution the same as it was in the 1960s, the bottom 90% would be $4.7 trillion richer today. Oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. I'm getting the infrastructure number mixed up with, the, with this number. $47 trillion. That's the right number. So that means 
every American in the bottom 90% would have an extra $1,144 per month for the rest of their lives if you just kept the wealth distribution the same as in the 1960s. That's how much they're screwing you. That's how much the system is rigged. So here we are. Now, they're going to release more stuff. Um, ProPublica says they're going to release more stuff about the specifics of how they legally dodge the taxes. Um, And I can't wait to see the details of that. But, I mean, this is grotesque. Nobody can defend this system. This is a system of, by, and for the wealthy. The wealthy have bought the government. They are oligarchs and they have full control. Corporations and billionaires have full control of our government. And so you see numbers like this, and there's barely a whimper. The wealth tax was pushed by like two people, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, and now they're not even talking about it. Biden's not even bringing it up. He's even backing off of the minor marginal income tax increases. It's like, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? How long can people sit back and take this? I mean, we need top-down reform, man. We absolutely do. It's unacceptable that we have a regressive tax system and billionaires pay less than average Americans. I mean, it makes people feel like a sucker for paying their taxes. And by the way, as I've told you guys a thousand times, I think the more progressive position is that for people who are poor or middle income, they should get a tax cut. I think that's the more progressive position. They should pay less in taxes and get more services. And you should raise taxes on the wealthy more. That's the real progressive position. I've never seen a tax cut for the working class that I didn't like. And I'm an ardent lefty. And that's how I feel about it. These guys should be paying the tax. These guys should. And don't tell me that it's a meritocracy and they somehow fucking earned it. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. It's not like the harder you work, the further you go. The hardest working person I ever met in my life was living around the poverty line. He worked three jobs and can barely get by. It's not the harder you work, the further you go. It's not that at all. So that's a myth. We don't live in a meritocracy. The only way to get back to some semblance of a meritocracy is to steeply raise taxes on the wealthy, steeply raise taxes on corporations, and redistribute to give everybody health care, everybody a good education, everybody paid time off. I mean, this is sick, man. This is sick. So there you have it. What a bombshell story from ProPublica. I mean, I give them so much credit for what they did here. Um, they got a leak, I guess, from somebody in the IRS, but they didn't give the specifics as to who it is. I guess the person is a whistleblower. Um, but it really goes to show you just how backwards the system is, just how much billionaires and corporations get away with. And that's the point, because, again, they bought a government. They effectively own the government. So they're deciding to give themselves colossal tax breaks to basically rob everybody else blind. And average Americans are working crazy hours and paying a much higher tax rate and have so much less. I mean, this is really, you're really flirting with uh, pitchforks time, baby. That's where we're at with this. So we better do some real reform ASAP or it can get ugly. And when I say ugly, I mean really ugly. Okay. All right, next. Kamala Harris traveled to Guatemala, and while she was there, she gave a speech. This part of the speech that I'm about to show you went viral. It went viral for pretty obvious reasons. 
She's talking about immigration, particularly illegal or undocumented immigration. Let's see what she had to say. And I want to emphasize that the goal of our work is to help Guatemalans find hope at home. At the same time, I want to be clear to folks in this region who are thinking about making that dangerous trek to the United States-Mexico border. Do not come. Do not come. The United States will continue to enforce our laws and secure our border. There are legal methods by which migration can and should occur. But we, as one of our priorities, will discourage illegal migration. And I believe if you come to our border, you will be turned back. So let's discourage our friends, our neighbors, our family members from embarking on what is otherwise an extremely dangerous journey. So I'm going to respond to that in a second. Let me just give you some specific numbers here. This is from Axios. The number of migrants illegally crossing the U.S.-Mexico border this fiscal year is already the most since 2006. That's 2006 is just before the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession. That's when the number plummeted. With four months left to go, according to preliminary Customs and Border Protection data obtained by Axios, Um, The numbers quantify a lingering problem. Nearly 900,000 migrants were stopped by Border Patrol from October 1st to May 31st. There were also more than 170,000 apprehensions last month, in line with 20-year records set in March and April. In addition, there continue to be significant numbers of migrants from more distant nations such as Ecuador, Venezuela, Cuba, and Haiti, the data shows. Um, And then... They go on to say, still, despite these efforts and the continued use of a Trump-era public health order to quickly turn back families and adults to Mexico, migrants continue to flock to the border. Um, Some migrants make multiple attempts to illegally cross the border, especially those kicked back to Mexico under the public health order. They are counted each time they are apprehended by Border Patrol. The majority of border crossers continue to come from Mexico, more than 40%, and Northern Triangle countries like Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. Um, So, listen, keep it real. Those numbers are astronomical. 900,000 migrants stopped by Border Patrol from October 1st to May 31st, and 170,000 apprehensions last month, 20-year records. So, let's respond to what Kamala Harris said, and then I'll get back to that as well. Where are my notes on Kamala Harris? First, the obvious point. The U.S. needs to stop the drug war. Needs to stop the drug war. One of the main reasons why people are fleeing here is they're escaping drug war violence. They don't want to live in absolutely devastated communities ravaged by gang violence effectively. And there were numbers, I forget which place, I think it was El Salvador, but I'm not sure. There were some places that are more dangerous than the Iraq war at the height of the Iraq war. That's how dangerous these places are. That's what we're talking about with many of them. And so you're really in no position to lecture unless and until the U.S. stops doing the things that are leading to the problem in the first place. You can't 
in part caused the problem and then turn around and blame people for trying to escape it. You have to fix the problem first and foremost. So end the drug war, end the drug war, end the drug war. That's obvious. Um, the other thing is stop with the disastrous trade deals. Now, listen, to be fair, I don't know how much the Guatemala situation is related to a trade deal because I don't know the specifics of the U.S. trade situation with Guatemala. So I don't know if that one pertains to this specific country. But in general, yes, if we stop the disastrous trade deals, then people wouldn't be fleeing from economically dilapidated places. Um, and then also, elephant in the room, the U.S. has a record of supporting coups all throughout Latin America. I mean, it's like rarely discussed, but it is a giant and very recent part of our history. So, I mean, we've overthrown democratic governments and put dictators in with a lot of these countries, and then, like, we're surprised when people try to escape their horrendous living circumstances. Kind of absurd. Kind of absurd. So, in other words, we need to control what we control. Stop the drug war, end the disastrous trade deals, stop supporting coups, the gist of what we should be doing first and foremost. Now, after we do those things, and here's where my spicy hot nuclear take comes in, where I know a lot of you guys won't agree with me, but after we do those things, I would have no problem with this speech. I would have no problem. She's saying, do not come. We'll continue to enforce our laws and secure our border. We'll discourage illegal immigration. If you want to come in, there are legal ways to come in. Uh, that I would be totally fine with if we stop doing those things that I just laid out. And so there's a lot of people who are trying to say, like, this is exactly like Trump. I mean, that sort of sidesteps what these people's position on immigration is. You know, I, there's a lot of left outrage over what Kamala is saying here, but none of those people ever say what their position on the border is. So is your position that anybody can come and they should be able to say immediately no matter what? Is that your position? And I'm asking this sincerely because it seems like that's what's, you know, what's at the core of what a lot of the objections to her speech are. And I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. And if you're going to take your criticisms to their logical conclusions and you're in favor of open borders, you should say that. And just so you know, if you are in favor of that, that's a phenomenally unpopular position. Because I don't, I'm of the belief that a nation state is not inherently bigoted, racist, xenophobic. Um, you're allowed, if you're a country, you're allowed to have borders and you're allowed to protect those borders. Now, should you be very humane in dealing with the flow of immigrants? Absolutely. And on that front, yes, the Trump administration failed colossally and the Biden administration failed colossally, for sure. But I want to know what the position is of the people who are criticizing her on this. Because it seems like, again, at the core of it, a lot of people are saying, like, yeah, anybody who comes should be able to stay, and that's the end of the conversation. And if you disagree, you're kind of bigoted, or you're exactly like Trump. Really? Really? I'm sorry. I simply don't agree with that. I simply do not agree with that. I'm, I fancy myself relatively moderate on the issue of immigration. We're allowed to have a border. We're allowed to enforce our border laws. But you should have a clear, safe, humane way of dealing with the flow of migrants. And obviously there should be a process for the people who've been here for a long time. There should be a process to get them citizenship. But if you're somebody who just came over, now one more caveat to this is the following. If you're talking about somebody 
who's, you know, seeking asylum, yes, legally you have to let them seek asylum and there needs to be a process to determine if they can stay here. But I do get the sense from a lot of the criticism from the left that they're of the belief that everybody is just, it's all asylum and that's it. Like there's not a single person who's crossing who shouldn't be allowed to come in. That's the sense I get. And again, I just don't agree with that. I would be fair-minded, reasonable, moral, and ethical in determining who I think deserves asylum and who doesn't. But there are going to be some people who deserve it, and there are going to be some people who don't. And, you know, is it that rejecting absolutely anybody is unacceptable on the left? Because that, again, I don't agree with that. So, yes, you could hit her with the hypocrisy charge of you're sounding a little Trumpian here. That's fair enough. But what I want to know is what is your actual solution? Because it's not an easy situation. I don't know, other than the things that I laid out in the crystal clear fashion, stop supporting coups and the drug war, stop the disastrous trade deal. Other than those things, what else can we do? What else can we do? Again, set up a more humane, fair process. But if the numbers are overwhelming, there really is no choice in many instances what to say. We can't accommodate a lot of this. What are we supposed to do? I, I, you should turn around. You know, and you could give them safe travel and all that stuff, but the, the solution is definitely not let everybody in no matter what, and that's the end of the conversation. And if that, you know, if that makes me a, a bad lefty or whatever, so be it. But I don't think that makes me a bad lefty. I think that makes me have a functioning brain. And people who would just argue, throw your hands up, and anything goes, I don't think that's realistic. And I also know that's phenomenally unpopular. And you're not going to get anybody with that message. So, you know, but that's my point. My point is, if you actually support open borders, say it and rep the position. And I'd respect it more if you said it. But just know, I don't agree with that. I don't think nation states are inherently, you know, terrible or bad or wrong. I think nation states exist. Honestly, it makes sense for them to exist simply for organization's sake and process sake. You can't just have like a global government and no borders. And then the global government is somehow going to effectively manage billions and billions of people. That's completely irrational, and that's not the way human beings work. The power centers would be so far away from regular people. So, yeah, to have a nation state is not bigoted or racist or wrong. To have different levels of government is good because they're responsive at different levels, whether it's the local government, the state government, the federal government. That's all a good thing. The, the, the lines that constitute borders are not like inherently evil. And there are some people on the left who seem to believe that. And so again, what I'm saying is you should voice what your opinion is and rep it up front. Because people could criticize all day. It's easy to criticize. It's easy to criticize Kamala here and be like, you sound like Trump. Fair enough. But what's your actual position? What should, what should the U.S. do? What should the U.S. do? Other than the obvious things which I laid out, do you believe that anybody who comes in by definition should be able to stay and that everybody's seeking asylum and therefore we don't even need a process. Is that what you believe? Again, I'm asking sincerely, because there seem to be plenty of people who that is at the core of what they're saying. So anyway, that's my nuclear spicy hot take. Um, I don't think anybody on the left who's criticizing Kamala for this is giving any answers of their own. I just see a lot of like, oh, you sound like Trump, and that's the end of the conversation. But they don't say, here's what we need to do. Again, other than the obvious, which I know all the lefties agree with, and the drug war, stop supporting the coup, stop the disaster trade deal. Other than that, is the, is the position let everybody in? I'm curious if that's your position. Because, by the way, as Bernie Sanders pointed out, the Koch brothers 
believe in that position. The Koch brothers want to do that. It's a, he said open borders is a Koch brothers proposal. You know who else believes in that? Economic libertarians, the Ayn Rand types. They believe in that. So you could take that position and you could defend it from, from you know, a progressive position or a lefty position, of course. But I'm just saying that uh, I don't agree and the Koch brothers do. So I'll leave it at that. All right, next. Oh, God, time for another spicy take. Time for another spicy take. I'm full of them today, guys. I am absolutely full of them today. Trending on Twitter yesterday was Hunter Biden, and I believe also hashtag racist Biden was trending. And here's the reason why. This is some reporting from the Daily Mail. They say, exclusive, Hunter Biden addressed his white lawyer as N-word multiple times, used phrases like true that N-word, and bantered, I only love you because you're black, in shocking text unearthed days after Joe's emotional Tulsa speech decrying racism. Text messages obtained by DailyMail.com reveal Hunter Biden used the N-word multiple times in banter with his lawyer. The president's son, 51, flippantly addressed corporate attorney George Mazayers, uh, who is white, by the racial slur with phrases including true dat N-word. In a December 2018 conversation, Hunter asked him, how much money do I owe you? Because N-word, you better not be charging me Hennessy rates. In another chat a month later, Hunter cracked jokes about his penis and then told him, I only love you because you're black. Now, um, the Daily Mail continues, by the way, and they say, Hunter also saved a meme on his computer, or maybe his phone, I don't know, with a photo of his father hugging Barack Obama with a caption describing a joke conversation. So here's the way that joke conversation goes. Obama says, I'm going to miss you, man. Joe Biden says, can I say it just this once? Obama says, Sigh. Go ahead, Joe. And Joe Biden says, You my N-word, Barack. Okay. So, that's the gist of the story. One of Trump's idiot sons was running with this and tweeting about it and playing the fake outrage game. So there's a bunch of things I want to say. First and foremost, what happened to the right being against political correctness? What happened to the right being against political correctness? Now, if this was some right-winger joking around in text saying N-I-G-G-A, would anybody on the right be like, oh, how dare you? If it was Steven Crowder who was caught in this situation, would anybody on the right care? Or would they all defend it and say their joke conversations get over it? We do edgy jokes. That's what we do. The only reason they're going after him is because politically he's nominally associated with the left or the Democrats because he's Joe Biden's son. That's it. So my point is, if you're against cancel culture, be against cancel culture. If you're against political correctness, be against political correctness. Don't be a fucking hypocrite because you can score some cheap partisan points. The other point is, I love how they keep bringing up in the article, this is days after Joe Biden gave a speech to crime racism in Tulsa. Mm. 
Last time I checked, Hunter Biden is not Joe Biden. He's his son, but who fucking cares? Are you responsible for what your son does? Are you responsible for what your dad does? If they do something, are you allowed to get tarred with it? And do you think that's reasonable when that happens? It's just, you get, it's, oh, they're reaching so hard. Oh, reach. Oh, reach. It, that just seems like absolute nonsense. Bring up Joe Biden's anti-racist speech and compare with this. And then the other point is this. Listen, I'm in favor of transparency where it's merited. So if you have some private exchanges about some corrupt deal going down, like, by the way, with Hunter and Burisma, what did I say throughout that whole scandal? If you're on the left, don't fucking defend Hunter on this. Don't defend Joe Biden on this. They're corrupt. Taking money from a Ukrainian energy company. The whole point they were giving Hunter money, the whole reason for that is so they had access to Joe and could get favors from Joe. If you don't see that, you're a clown. That's obviously what it was. So if you release private exchanges talking about that, I'll defend the release all day long. We should have transparency. We should uncover corruption. But my position on it, when it's private conversations that have nothing to do with corruption or nothing to do with war crimes or things of that nature, is the fuck are you doing? This is a wanton violation of their privacy. Two people having a joke around conversation as buddies, this has nothing to do with corruption, this has nothing to do with war crimes, this has nothing to do with any sort of government transparency and holding people accountable. So what the fuck? He has a right to privacy. They have a right to privacy. Nobody else should get in their fucking business. Again, I believe in full transparency and openness, oh, openness, excuse openness, openness, um, WikiLeaks style, Edward Snowden style. If you're exposing NSA spying, exposing war crimes, exposing corruption, release all the private correspondence, because we have a right to know that as American citizens. Do we have a right to know this as American citizens, a private conversation between Hunter and his lawyer? Fuck out of here. Of course we don't. And by the way, again, I'm consistent. I would say this if it was somebody on the right or Hunter, who I guess is nominally on the left, don't know who, he, who even really knows what his fucking politics are. Just because his dad is Joe Biden. I'm supposed to think he's like right in line with everything Joe Biden believes. That's ridiculous. And then, listen, my final point is the most controversial one, which is who cares? So, listen, I, admittedly, I'm the last person in the world who's in a position to judge this. Because everybody knows, oh, I have a glorious, long, infamous track record with old tweets. So much so that they're probably the most popular old tweets of anybody's old tweets. And I made a decision on principle that, yes, that's part of me. That's part of who I am or who I was. Everybody deserves to see it. They deserve to see the funny things and the good things that I still defend, and they deserve to see the things that'll make, that would make me cringe today that I don't agree with anymore. But I believe in transparency. I believe in that openness for myself, and I put those things out publicly. So I'm in no position to judge anybody when it comes to this stuff. But having said that, I'm still going to give my opinion. My opinion is this. Who cares? I have a conversation, and they're joking around. Now, would my opinion change if it was N-I-G-G-E-R? Oh, you bet your ass it would. My, opi- my opinion would be on the substance of it, not the, not the right of whether or not it should have been released, but on the substance of it, I would say, I don't like that. I think that's unacceptable. I don't think anybody who's white, or maybe even anybody, period, should use N-I-G-G-E-R. 
because that's like the definition of racism. But I think the context is entirely different if it's N-I-G-G-A. I do. I'm sorry. Now, maybe in the year 2021, as a fucking 30-some-odd-year-old white kid, I'm not allowed to fucking say that. Okay, fair enough. But I'm not wrong. I'm not wrong. There's a big difference between N-I-G-G-A and N-I-G-G-E-R, and anybody who's being honest about it will say that. Now, you're allowed to have the opinion, both are unacceptable, but more, one is more unacceptable. That's a fair opinion. That's a fair opinion. But you're definitely not allowed to say that they're the fucking same, because they're not the fucking same, not even close. Using N-I-G-G-A in a joke conversation with your buddy privately is nowhere near N-I-G-G-E-R, which is by definition racist and is only used in racist context. So, uh, listen, again, I know I'm the last person who's in a position to be able to judge this stuff, but I don't care about this thing. I don't care about what Hunter's saying privately to his lawyer or his buddy or his girlfriend or whoever. Listen, Hunter's got a million problems. He's an addict. He had sex with and was with his dead brother's ex-wife or whatever. The guy obviously has problems. But I'm not going to judge that shit because everybody's got issues. I'm not judging that shit. The shit I judge is the corruption. The shit I judge is the pay-to-play stuff. The shit I judge is being born with a silver spoon in your mouth, you know, born on third and thought you hit a trip. That's what I judge. That's what I judge, as any reasonable person should. But this, I'm not judging at all. Not even close. So, again... I don't know how spicy this take is. I don't know how nuclear it is. There's going to be a lot of you who agree with me, but maybe there's a lot of you who disagree with me vehemently. I don't know, but the whole thing is a little silly to me. The people who are anti-cancel culture and anti-political correctness all of a sudden are pro-cancel culture and pro-political correctness. And um, it's all because partisan hack culture war bullshit. And listen, in context, I don't even think this is that bad. And again, furthermore, this is a private conversation And this is not something where the public has a right to know. You have a right to know about corruption and war crimes and things of that nature. You don't have a right to know about a joke conversation behind the scenes. I mean, come on, get the fuck out of here. So I know this is, but that's the point, guys. The main point is this is all they fucking have on the right. This is it. What did Hunter do today? Did he do meth? Let's talk about that for a week and a half. Nobody fucking cares. Nobody cares. And this is not a drag down on Joe. Because Joe and Hunter are not the same person. There's a million reasons to go after Joe, and I do it. This is not one of them. So get the fuck over it. Get over yourself. All you do is culture war shit because you don't have anything when it comes to the economy, because you don't have anything when it comes to foreign policy. You'd be talking about that if you had anything that was popular on that front. You don't. You don't. So all day long, it's Hunter, 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 Hunter. He's not even fucking elected. He sits around and jerks off all day. Why the fuck do I care about what Hunter is doing? Jesus Christ, I can't. All right, anyway, there you have it. Hunter N-word scandal. Scandal. You make your own mind up. All right, next. We have another one. Well, this one, this take I don't think is nearly as spicy as the previous ones. Okay, let me pull up my extra notes on this one as well. 
So Ilhan Omar was trending on Twitter the other day, and um, she was trending for the silliest reason I think I've ever seen. So let me show you the headline. This is from the Daily Mail. Ilhan Omar claims the U.S. commits crimes against humanity and engages in unthinkable atrocities like those carried out by Israel, Hamas, Afghanistan, and the Taliban. Representative Ilhan Omar likened U.S. and Israeli actions to the unthinkable atrocities committed by terrorist groups like Hamas and the Taliban. We must have the same level of accountability and justice for all victims of crimes against humanity, the Minnesota Democratic Congresswoman tweeted. We have seen unthinkable atrocities committed by the U.S., Hamas, Israel, Afghanistan, and the Taliban. In her tweet, the Minnesota Congresswoman included a clip of her line of questioning with Secretary of State Anthony Blinken during a hearing Monday. The questioning did not include lumping in U.S. with terrorist organizations. So, um, I, yeah, so she either said something in passing or it was in a tweet, and this is what the right is melting down over. Again, the claim is the U.S. has committed crimes against humanity, and the U.S. engages in, quote, unthinkable atrocities. And then the comparison is like those of Hamas, Talib- Taliban, Afghanistan, Israel, so on and so forth. Um, so, again, she trended over this on Twitter. And it was nonstop right-wingers saying she hates America and she's anti-American, yada, yada. So she responded and said, I love all the pearl clutching that, that the right wing does whenever I talk about justice for victims of the atrocities of the U.S. or our allies, but twist themselves into a pretzel defending Trump, calling our country a country of, quote, a lot of killers. Miss me with your faux outrage. So the thing she's referring to there is um, when Trump did, I think it was the pre-Super Bowl interview with Bill O'Reilly, um, and Bill O'Reilly said something along the lines of, well, Vladimir Putin's a killer. And Trump's response was, we have a lot of killers. We have a lot of killers. What, you think our country is so innocent? Now, I remember at that time, Democrats flipped the fuck out and went after Trump for saying that. And I did a segment where I said, what he's saying is fucking obvious. What he's saying is something that Noam Chomsky says seven days of the week. And when Noam Chomsky says it, everybody's like, yeah, that's, that's accurate. Or a lot of people on the left are like, fair. Trump said it in passing, and all of a sudden it's a scandal, and everybody's, oh, he hates America, or he's defending Putin, or whatever it is. What he said is factual. Truth is always a defense. Full stop. So anyway, Ilhan's right. Trump said a similar thing. Ilhan said this. I don't even understand the outrage or the fake outrage or the offense being taken at this. Honestly, I think at the end of the day, it comes down to, yet again, right-wing political correctness. This idea that only the left can be politically correct is just totally wrong. Right-wingers do political correctness all the time. Look at what happened with Lil Nas X when he released the Satan shoe. It was a national scandal and Republicans melted down and literally called for him to be canceled. That's the definition of cancel culture. That's the definition of political correctness. Who are you kidding? They just canceled Hunter for using the N-word, soft A, in a private correspondence in a joking way. Don't tell me you're against cancel culture and then you look for things to cancel all the fucking time. This is the definition of right-wing cancel culture. Because when you look at the actual facts, the United States, we did Guantanamo Bay, still doing Guantanamo Bay, so torture the illegal Iraq war, based on lies, slavery, Jim Crow, Japanese internment, nuking civilians at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, depleted uranium tips used on civilians, and now there's incredibly high birth defect rates in the areas where we did that. 
the drone war, which is illegal under international law, funding al-Qaeda on the ground in Syria, among other places, propping up dictators, which we do on days that end in Y. The list goes on and on. The idea that we commit atrocities and that we commit uh, crimes against humanity, I file that under the duh category. And anybody who's informed on this or honest would say the same thing. It's the most obvious comment in the world, but they get so triggered. A Democrat said it, and also it's a, a Muslim black Democrat. So now, if you bring up facts, you hate America. Whereas when Trump would do it, oh, he's correct, he's right, and it makes sense. Just like when Trump, his whole thing was make America great again, meaning right now it's not great. He would say our country's falling apart, everything's terrible, everything's shit, and the right would go, yeah! When Ilhan Omar says the same thing, oh my God, you hate America, love it or leave it, get out of here. The double standard is so annoying. For the love of God, think about the actual fucking issue instead of who's saying some shit. If you take anything away from this segment, let it be that. Think about the actual issue in question as opposed to who's saying it. I don't care who says it. If it's true, it's true. That's the end of it. People always twist themselves into these shitty partisan pretzels. Like, be an adult. Be serious. Use your brain. Obviously, we've done unthinkable atrocities. Obviously, we've done crimes against humanity. And by the way, that's not to say we've never done anything good. Of course, we've done great things. The New Deal was absolutely phenomenal. The War on Poverty was phenomenal. The First Amendment is one of the best things that any government has ever done, ever. There are Enlightenment values that, if we actually live up to them, are great. Democracy, if we actually live up to it, is great. We've done a lot of great things. I'll talk about the great things, and I'm also going to talk about the shitty things. Don't tell me I I can only talk about one or the other, because that's fucking stupid. It makes no sense. Of course I'm going to talk about both things. But they lost it. They melted down because she said something obvious. Don't be one of these mindless drones. No pun intended by using drone. Don't be one of them. This is a non-scandal scandal yet again. Anything, they, anything she says, they pounce on, as if it's always unreasonable. This is the most reasonable thing anybody's ever said. It's just descriptive. If you don't like that, maybe you're a triggered snowflake and you should get the fuck over it. Okay. We are cruising today, baby. Next, let's talk about Pedro Castillo. So let's talk a little bit about the Peru elections. This is a really interesting thing that came across my radar over the past few days. So in the election, you have Pedro Castillo is the leftist, and you have Kiko, Kaiko, Kiko, however you pronounce it, Fujimori is uh, the right-winger. Now, Fujimori is actually the daughter of the former dictator of Peru. Funny, that's actually, that information is not being shared in every article about this election, even though I think it probably should be. Um, she's the daughter of the former dictator of Peru. Now, as of right now, as I'm talking to you, Castillo, the leftist, is ahead. He has 50.2% of the vote to 49.8% for Fujimori. Now, Fujimori's out there in a very Trumpian way claiming voter fraud. As of now, there's zero evidence of voter fraud. 
a lot of people are scared because it looks like perhaps we're in another Bolivia-like situation where the U.S. would intervene in one way or another and try to say, oh, no, it's fake, and no, Evo Morales didn't win. This is nonsense. And Now, they haven't done it yet to this point, to be fair, but a lot of people are watching nervously, hoping that doesn't come to fruition. Um, so if everything stays as is, and by the way, 97% of the vote is counted. Actually, might be a little, up a little since then. But um, if everything stays as it is, Castillo ends up winning, and so that would be you know, the leftist beating the right winger. Now, give you some inf- more information on the candidates. Castillo, his slogan for his campaign is, quote, no more poor people in a rich country. No more poor people in a rich country. He's a, I'm going to butcher this word. Everybody knows I don't know how to say this word. He's a rural teacher, rural, rural teacher. Um, he's a farmer, and he's a union leader. Now, Fujimori, big time in favor of the free market capitalism and privatization. Um, her father serving a 25-year sentence for corruption and 25 killings. Under her father's reign, they did forced sterilization of 270,000 indigenous women and 22,000 men. Fujimori uh, mostly has support in Lima, the capital. Castillo has most support in rural areas. Now, it's a little difficult because the Lima results came in first and then slowly the rural results rolled in. I really can't say that word. (laughs) Rural, rural results came in. And um, so it looked like Fujimori was way up and then Castillo surged. It's actually very similar to what happened in Bolivia. And, um, and actually a little bit to what happened in the U.S., although in the U.S. it's reversed in that this, a lot of the pro-Biden areas came later and Biden ended up winning. Um, but, I mean, it's common in politics. You count certain areas first, one candidate leads, and then you count other areas, and the other candidate surges, and that's basically what happened. Now, um, Castillo is a – I love this. A lot of this sounds like it's contradictory, but apparently it's all stuff he's said. Castillo is a Marxist socialist who rejects communism. He works with right-wing populists on labor rights and pension benefits. Um, He's a, quote, far-left unionist. He's the son of illiterate peasant farmers. And he has, quote, vowed to nationalize Peru's vast mineral resources and expel foreigners who commit crimes in his country. So, here, let me throw up on screen another thing about um, Castillo that's fascinating. So he was asked in an interview, would you legalize abortion? Quote, absolutely not. Euthanasia, I don't agree either. Gay marriage, even worse. Family first. Legalize weed, of course not. So this is actually one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about this election. Um, These views seem incredibly heterodox in the context of U.S. politics. Because usually, if somebody who's on the left, if somebody's on the left, it's assumed that on the social issues, they're sort of down the line lefties. To be fair, some of this stuff like euthanasia, you know, I don't, as far as I know, there's no lefties, lefty politicians in the U.S. calling for, that's physician-assisted suicide, calling for that. Um, but virtually every other one, it's, it's assumed like it's a given that left candidates or lefties in the U.S. Are, support all these things. So this seems really, really heterodox. But I guess my point in doing this segment is to say the context differs massively around the world. And there are polls in Peru, specifically on the issue of abortion, but maybe even a lot of the other issues that are here, where Peru is like the country in the poll that was the most against abortion. So that is something that's, you know, 
spans the political spectrum in Peru that virtually everybody's against abortion. So it's just fascinating to see here you have a leftist who, at least as of right now, nominally won, and he's economically really, really far left. He's like basically nationalize everything, give the workers all the power, right? So economically hardcore left-winger, but then socially, I wouldn't even call this moderate. I would say he's just right-wing on a lot of these social issues. So listen, you can determine what to make of this. You can determine if you were in Peru, what would you do? Would you do effectively the lesser evil vote for the candidate who's the leftist on economics but bad on the social issues, or would you just spit out the election? And I guess another reason I'm doing this segment is to sort of get you guys more interested in this idea of defining what you think your red lines are for supporting a candidate. You know what I mean? Because you're never going to find somebody who agrees with you across the board 100%. It's just not going to happen. You, you could be the most hardcore viewer and lover of secular talk. You're never going to agree with 100% of what I say. It's just not possible for human beings. So you need to ask yourself, like, what are my red lines? What do I view as, like, I can't abide that, you know? Um, and how many issues does somebody have to be super dead wrong on, in your opinion, for you to say, fuck it, I'm not going to support them? Or are you completely pragmatic on these issues where you say, I will always take the lesser evil because um, the lesser evil is less evil, and less evil always beats more evil. So if I have, if I have a gun to my head and I have to pick between the two, I'm going to pick the better one. You know, I, I honestly, I believe all of these positions are defensible. I, me, personally... I have my own views on it that I've expressed time and time again, um, but I do think there's solid arguments for anything, any position on the spectrum here of doing the lesser evil vote or not doing the lesser evil vote or what even counts as lesser evil. Um, but there you have it. So you have hardcore economic leftists who are actually very socially conservative. And I mean, listen, when I go through the list here, I think he's wrong on all these things. Legalize abortion. Of course, I keep abortion legal. I believe in Roe versus Wade. Overall, I'm a moderate. I have some issues with late-term abortion, but before that, all systems go. And like over 90% of abortions in the U.S. are not late-term. So I'm pro-abortion. Uh, euthanasia, physician-assisted suicide, I'm in favor of that. Gay marriage, of course I'm in favor of that. Legalizing weed, of course I'm in favor of that. So, you know, huge disagreement. But, you know, I guess the counter-argument that some people would make, and this is not dissimilar from what people were saying in the U.S. election, People would say Fujimori is a fucking fascist. So you got to pick that over fascism, right? A lot of people said that about Trump too. Trump's a fucking fascist. What are you gonna? I know you don't like Biden, but it's not nearly as bad as Trump, right? So you can see a lot of the the same debates and the same issues and the same questions arise when you talk about these things. But either way, I find it I find the whole conversation fascinating here. I really do. It's really interesting to see these heterodox views from a U.S. perspective when they aren't actually heterodox in the context of Peru. Um, and I think the conversation overall, again, is really interesting because you get to think about what are your red lines, what are not your red lines, are you pragmatic, are you principled, are you whatever. So anyway, there you have it. It looks like he's holding on. It looks like he's holding on. And um, by the skin of his teeth, that is, 50.2% to 49.8%. But we'll see how everything unfolds because, again, you just got to hope for not another Brazil-like situation. Did I say Brazil? Not another Bolivia-like situation. 
Okay, next. So President Trump released another one of his statements. Um, this one I didn't think was real when I first read it. It's one of those, you know, how every now and then Trump will say something that you're like, that's, he didn't really say that. And then you look it up and you're like, oh, my God, he fucking said it. This is one of those. So here's his newest statement. Now, this is not in his new version of Twitter anymore because he shut that down. This is a regular presidential statement. It's a statement by Donald J. Trump, 45th president of the United States of America. Congratulations to the country of Nigeria, who just banned Twitter because they banned their president. More countries, I don't know why that's in all caps, should ban Twitter and Facebook for not allowing free and open speech. All voices should be heard. In the meantime, competitors will emerge and take hold. Who are they to dictate good and evil if they themselves are evil? Perhaps I should have done it while I was president, but Zuckerberg kept calling me and coming to the White House for dinner, telling me how great I was. 2024? Where do I even begin with this? So he can't help but tease 2024 because that's what he does. He always teases. He was teasing running in like the 1990s. He was teasing running for office. Um, the admission at the end there is phenomenal. The admission is Zuckerberg whined and dined me and told me I was great and stroked my ego, and therefore I went soft on Facebook. But maybe if I was back in there, I wouldn't, and I shouldn't. You jackass. You're admitting how easy it is to manipulate you. You're admitting that you're corrupt. You're committing that, you know, personal relationships override any sort of principled or intellectual beliefs. What a fucking idiot. God, he's so dumb. Oh, he's so dumb. But the rest, I, the rest of that is, I mean, it's classic Trump, but it's also so Trumpian. I, I thought it wasn't real. Why is countries in capital letters? Like, why, would, of all the words, why that one? And why is that the only one? Like, what? I don't, but he's saying very clearly ban Twitter because Twitter banned the Nigerian president. So he's like, when Twitter shuts down somebody's free speech, we should respond by shutting down everybody's free speech. That's his position. Don, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You're saying that the thing they're doing is bad in principle, and then you're advocating doing the same thing in principle. It is so bad and so wrong when you shut people down in the conversation. Everybody has a right to speak, and that's why I'm proposing that nobody have a right to speak. So ban everybody because some people were banned. The fuck are you talking? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life, Don. That's the thing. He's just a petty, narcissistic man. So everything is through that lens. You were mean to me and you were bad to me, so therefore the whole thing should be shut down. That's what I think. What are you, five? It's just, it's so childish. Listen, I have so many criticisms of Facebook. I have so many criticisms of Twitter. I think every social media company should be regulated as a public utility and we expand free speech protections. But that's a real position. My position is not, I don't like the thing you did, so now nobody should be able to use the thing that has billions of users. Take away everybody's speech because I'm against taking away speech. I can't. I mean, the guy's a fucking clown, man. This guy got elected president. 2024? I know, dude, you feel it. Uh, he's going to do this regardless, but it's funny that he's doing it now, specifically when he's at his most irrelevant time. You know, I mean, say what you want about deplatforming. I'm against it in principle, but it does work in the sense that 
Now people are searching for his name way less than before. He's way less in the national conversation. So it had the effect that people wanted it to have. It definitely worked. Again, the question is, is it right or wrong in principle? But that's one of the reasons why he's probably doing the 2024 thing, is because he feels like, I have to rile people up and get back in the conversation. I have to do that. Well, congratulations. You got me back in the conversation because I see this and I have to comment on it because it's like the most contradictory belief anybody has ever had about anything ever. Okay. All right, let me do one more and then we'll take a break. French President Emmanuel Macron was slapped by a French voter. This is something that's interesting to see. Here's the CNN segment on it. Member of the public slapped French President Emmanuel Macron in the face earlier today. Mr. Macron was visiting restaurant owners in the southeast part of France as COVID restrictions are being eased in the country. You can see here clearly on video the moment the incident happened as he greeted crowds and how quickly, take a look at this, how quickly that's the slap after, uh, afterwards the security detail really reacted. Melissa Bell joins us live now from Paris. So, Melissa, despite the comments on social media, there is nothing funny about a world leader getting slapped in the face. Just walk us through what happened and what this particular man's grievance was uh, with Macron. The video has, of course, seen, as you'd imagine, gone viral, and of course, his violence is part of that. And if the two men that are now in custody face uh, a, 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 a possible fine, break, a prison sentence, possibly also, because, of course, he is uh, as someone invested with the power, the authority of the state in him, and that carries a hefty fine and possible imprisonment. Uh, but it is uh, an act of violence that's been widely condemned. Look, Emmanuel Macron has faced over the last few years a lot of criticism. The yellow vest, you'll remember for a couple of years, uh, his handling uh, later on of the coronavirus crisis. More recently, he is a divisive character here in France. At the moment, next year's uh, general election looks pretty tight. Uh, about 41% of the French approve of him, but those that disapprove, disapprove fairly strongly, and of course that is a worry for Emmanuel Macron. I have to say, Dana, that the board that the political class in its entirety is gathered around the French president. This is what the French prime minister had to say about the incident shortly after it happened. Pour indiquer à la représentation nationale, j'en suis sûr tout à fait solidaire qu'à travers le chef de l'État, c'est tout simplement la démocratie qui est visée. La démocratie... La démocratie... Mais... Both right and left also condemned the act of violence, saying, uh, but this was meant to be the beginning of a charm offensive, looking ahead to next spring's crucial presidential election for the time being. Emmanuel Macron's team cannot have considered that it's gone off to a good start, saying... So there, there's a lot to say in response to this. I mean, first, I'll make the very obvious point, which is I'm against all forms of offensive violence. I think violence is only moral and ethical and justified for defensive reasons. And I'd even go as far as to say defense against imminent attack. So that's always been my standard on violence. I've never really wavered on that. This obviously violates that principle. Um, but having said that, this is the most French thing of all time, and it speaks to a broader, um, a broader sentiment 
in French society that the politicians are terrified of the public. Here in the U.S., the public is terrified of the politicians. There in France, the politicians are terrified of the public. So they have a system with all of its flaws that is way more small d democratic because the people have some semblance of control over the politicians. And just like we saw with those yellow vest protests, uh, they got the yellow vest got people, got the government to back down and Macron to back down on some of the things they were pushing for. I think a gas tax was one thing, among other things. Um, they really get to the street. They did, they did some protests recently where they dumped like pounds of manure shit or something on the steps of one of the governmental bodies. Like, they do not fuck around with their protests. They will just go on these massive, giant protests and demand very specific things, and then oftentimes they end up getting those things. And this is what happens when you have a strong sense of um, democracy, and you understand that the politicians owe you. You elected them. They're supposed to represent you. If they're not representing you, they're stepping out of line, and you've got to make them fall back in line. And that's what they do. They make them do that. And, um, again, I, it's obvious. I'm against all offensive forms of violence. This is an offensive form of violence. I'm only for violence for defensive reasons, so I'm against it. Um, but I'd be lying to you if I said, now knowing that Macron is safe and he's fine and nothing else happened, I look at it and I'm like, it is kind of funny, isn't it? I mean, come on. Again, don't do it. Nobody do it. Nobody slap a head of state. Nobody slap anybody. It's bad. It's wrong. It's terrible. It's evil. But now, since we know he's safe, and the other thing is, I don't, like, why is nobody asking that guy what his politics are? Because Macron is like a, a centrist, lefty, massive corporatist. He's sort of like Obama of, um, of France. So what were that guy's politics? Is he far right? Is he far left? What are his beliefs? I'd be very curious to know what that guy's beliefs are and what he says his reason is. But they just seem to be burying that. And, of course, there's, you know, the reason to bury that is what? If you just drum up sympathy for Macron, then, you know, the argument is like a defense, effectively, of the establishment of France, um, where the whole conversation now is about, how, oh, how wrong is that? Yeah, we all agree that part is wrong. But what exactly was the beef there? What exactly was the issue in question? I'm curious. I'm curious. I'd be lying to you guys if I said I wasn't curious. So, um, if, by the way, if that were to happen in the U.S., decent chance the person who slapped whoever the head of state is, Trump, Biden, whatever, that they would have been killed. Very, very possible that that would have happened. Um, and you can determine for yourself whether or not you think that's a good thing or a bad thing, you know. Uh, but I do think it's much more likely that somebody in the U.S. would have been killed if they did the exact same thing. And um, listen, it, it really does speak to this bubbling discontent with the establishment and the establishment across the world, the neoliberal world order, the, the corporate global order, is not viewed as legitimate anymore because they're no longer improving people's lives. There's, everybody feels like they're being left behind. You have a tiny sliver of the population that's phenomenally wealthy, and then everybody else is sort of screwed. And so, again, I don't know what this guy's politics are, but from my perspective, there's plenty of right-wing and left-wing resentment of the powers that be. And so you're going to have it manifest in ways like this. And at this point, maybe people should consider themselves lucky that it hasn't gotten worse than this. Because with just how much poverty and degradation and misery that's out there, 
this and worse stuff is going to happen more. Okay. Let me take a break. When we come back, Fox News goes after minimum wage workers, which is like the last people in society anybody should go after. Stay right there.
back, bitch. We are back, bitch. All right, welcome back to the show, guys. Still got a lot of stuff to get to, especially because... We have Joe Rogan next week, so there won't be live shows. So a lot of, wanted to do a bunch of extra content today. I already did some of it, so yeah, still a lot of stuff left to talk about. I just want to take a moment real quick to thank all of the people who support this show. Um, I don't know how new a lot of you guys are who are listening, but in 2017, there was this thing called Adpocalypse that hit. And, I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory, but what happened is there was some very mainstream corporate ad, like a Nestle ad or something, that ran on a white supremacist YouTube channel. And some news outlets wrote about that, and YouTube panicked and overreacted and shut down all funding for news and politics overnight. Like that. So we went from doing absolutely fine to making zero dollars and zero cents overnight. Now, I don't remember how long it lasted for, but it was at least like four or five days where we made nothing. It may have even been as long as like a week. Um, And when I say I was panicked, that the word panic isn't strong enough. We need like a, we need a, a, more a, a word that has more of a gut punch to it than just panic. Panic does, is not visceral enough to describe like the intensity of the emotion that I was feeling. And by the way, many others in this space were feeling. I know David Packman went through the same thing and many others did. So, um, man, that was rough. So anyway, what happened at the time was I realized, and many others realized, we don't trust YouTube at all, not even a little bit, because at any moment they could pull the rug out from underneath us. Now, since then, the monetization situation has gotten better, but now you all know the new fight is the algorithm, how we feel like the algorithm suppresses us massively. You know, we had, what was it, an 88% drop in new subscribers when they rolled out these new things. That the, the YouTube CEO admitted, like, we take content that's borderline content, and we try not to recommend it that much, and we try to, you know, kind of shove it off to the dark corners of the Internet. And I think that that's how we're listed now. I think we're deranked and the algorithm doesn't treat us fairly. So anyway, I digress from that point. Bottom line is, I don't trust YouTube. You don't trust YouTube. We shouldn't trust YouTube. At any moment, they could pull the rug out from underneath us. They've already in multiple ways pulled the rug out from underneath us. Um, But that's why I want to thank you guys for always supporting the show, always watching the show. If you guys like the videos, that means the world. If you guys um, subscribe, that means the world. If you click that bell, the notification bell, that also means the word, means the world. Uh, we have to try to kind of subvert the algorithm screwing us, and we have to try to, you know, stand up, not just for this show, but for all independent media that you like, because, you know, I really do feel like the system is kind of biased against us, but you have been there for me and for the show all along. And anyway, to get back to the apocalypse thing, The way that we survived is we set up a Patreon overnight. And all I did, I came out and I said, listen, here's the deal. YouTube screwed us. We no longer trust YouTube at all. Even if they unscrew us, I still don't fucking trust them. So if you love the show, if you like the show, if you watch it, if you believe in what I'm doing here, what we're doing here, 
donate a couple bucks a month, and that will mean the world. And you guys fucking came through. And thousands of you stepped up and donated two bucks a month or five bucks a month or seven bucks a month or whatever. Um, and that was everything. And that got us through, through the rough times. And now we have, you know, we have the Patreon and it relies on you guys to do the small dollar recurring donations. So anyway, I want to thank everybody who's a Patreon subscriber and donate whatever you donate, whether it's $2, $7, or if you went nuts and said, take $20 a month. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. It means the world. Um, I also want to thank people who, whenever I do the live streams, they give the super chats. I apologize if I haven't gotten to yours specifically. I get so many when I do a live stream that even if I talk for three hours, I still can't get to all of them. But I want to thank you for sending the super chats. That really means a lot as well. Um, And I also want to thank the subscribers to Crystal Kyle and Friends on Substack. You know, so anyway, if you support the show, if you like the show, please consider doing a $2 donation per month on Patreon or whatever you can. If you can't, I understand it. Everything from this show, everything from Secular Talk, the Kyle Kalinske show, will always be free on YouTube. I just want you to know that. So if you can't afford to give, totally fine. Enjoy the content anyway, and I love you. But an extra I love you to the ones who tip every month. For the show. It really means the world. Um, so thank you from the bottom of my heart. If you want to support the show, the links are in the video description box. You can give two bucks a month on Patreon or whatever, and, and it means that the world um, consider it, you know, like a monthly tip for the show. Uh, if you want to subscribe to Crystal Kyle and Friends on Substack, that link is also below. That's $5 a month, and that gets you the video of our interviews a day early. Again, It'll be totally free in audio form for everybody on Saturday. So if you can't afford it, it's completely fine. But if you want to get the video, that little slight extra perk, link in the video description box, $5 a month. Um, And also, by the way, you could subscribe on Substack for free and get the audio version and have it, it comes right to your uh, email the second it drops. So whether or not you're going to pay the five bucks or not, you should still subscribe on Substack. Um, But anyway, again, I want to say thank you to everybody you know, without you guys, there's no exaggeration to say that without you guys, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here. You know, I'm proud to say I have never had a conversation with an advertiser for Secular Talk, ever. I've been doing this full time since 2012, 2013, like late 2012, early 2013. I've never once had a conversation with an advertiser. You make that possible. You know, yes, YouTube has... um, when it's not Adpocalypse and they do run ads, they have their own, you know, Google marketing team that talks to the advertisers, and so I don't have to. So there's a buffer there. So that system, when it works, is actually okay. But, you know, I'm proud to say I've never spoken to an advertiser. I wear that as a badge, badge of honor. With Crystal, with Crystal Kyle and friends, I'm not kidding when I say we are making about 25% could make with that podcast because I know what people – I mean, we're ranked in the top 20 – on of all the podcasts in the world and that doesn't even include the substack podcast where a lot of people listen so we're probably top 10 in the world for podcasts and i know what other people who have podcasts that are ranked that high i know what they make what crystal and i make is nowhere near it but that's because we made the decision we want to build something that literally has zero ad dollars not even the youtube ads Sometimes Google runs them, but they get all the profit for that because I turn off all the ads for all the Crystal Kylan friends. So we don't read an ad. 
um, and they don't run any ads automatically. There are no ads for Crystal Kylan Friends. So her and I make 25% of what we could make, but we chose to do that because it's not about the ads, and it's not about the money. So anyway, if you do support us, you could tip the $5 a month and get the video a day early. But um, again, I wouldn't be here without you guys, and I just want you to know I'm well aware of that, and there's not a day that goes by that I don't appreciate it. Okay, next. So Fox News is at it again. Art Laffer, the world's dumbest and most wrong economist, uh, was on one of the midday shows, and he said something that went viral for all the wrong reasons. Okay, Austin wants to talk about the current McDonald's CEO, Kaczynski. He's noting that artificial intelligence technology has 85% accuracy with filling orders, with workers having to step in for approximately one in five orders. It's going to be a big leap, he says, to go from 10 restaurants to 14,000 restaurants, but there is no doubt they are working in that direction, Art. Yeah, for, for those people, Sandra, who are coming into the labor force brand fresh, uh, not old-timers who've been around for a while, the poor, the minorities, the disenfranchised, uh, those with less education, young people who haven't had the job experience, these people aren't worth $15 an hour in most cases. And so, therefore, when you have a $15 an hour minimum wage, uh, they don't get that first job. They don't get the requisite skills to earn above the minimum wage. And after a few years, they become unemployable. And after becoming the unemployable, they become hostile. Art Laffer wants you to know that, and I quote, the poor, minorities, the disenfranchised, the less educated, the young workers, they aren't worth $15 an hour in most cases. I love it when they just say it and wear it on their sleeve. Like, yeah, Art, maybe that's the problem with the system, is that we don't value human beings simply for being human beings. You have to find a way to fit yourself into this giant, corrupt, rotten, disgusting economy. And if you can't fit into the system, well, then you're the problem, and then you're an outcast, and you're shoved to the corners of society and treated horrendously and left behind. See, when I hear that, I think, oh, what a phenomenal argument against the way the economy works. He hears that, and he thinks, well, you better just accept less money and live in poverty and continue to work full-time without making enough money to survive. What? He's making an argument against the $15 minimum wage. And the argument has to boil down to accept less, don't make enough money to survive, but keep showing up to work on a full-time schedule. That is, not only is that callous, it's also stupid to think that that's like sustainable in the long run. That system is not proving its worth that system is useless. We shouldn't, again, the economy should work to serve the people, not the people need to fit into the economy. I mean, I consider that obvious. He doesn't. He views the economy as like the, this flawless, godlike being that we always must, um, you know, genuflect to. And by the way, he says early on there, well, AI is 85% accurate. That's fucking terrible. Imagine you go to McDonald's and you order and only 85% of the time they get it right. I don't know about you guys, 99% of the time they get it right for me. 85% of the time? And he's like, God, these robots are going to replace the people. They're 85% accurate. 
then it's going to be a while until they replace the people because 85 sucks and it'll piss everybody off. Now, by the way, the other thing is, if you're going to talk about AI eventually taking everybody's job, and there's no doubt that AI has already come in and taken a lot of jobs, but the point that follows it should be, and that's why we need a universal basic income to make sure that the people are okay during this transitionary period in the economy. You know, Stephen Hawking said it, and he's a mega genius, way smarter than Art Laffer and way smarter than myself. He was like, listen, there is going to come a time where the robots could do all the work. And when we cross that bridge, what you have to do is have a fair distribution of the wealth in the system so that everything still functions and we have peace and security and order in society. If you don't take care of the people and you have the robots take over and you have extreme wealth and income inequality, that's a recipe for a dystopian sci-fi futuristic apocalypse novel, and everybody knows it. But he doesn't use that argument to make that point. He's not like, damn, the robots are taking over, so we need a UBI, or we really need to reform the system, or we really need workers' rights and uh, you know, labor unions to fight back against this and to make the machines take a back seat. He doesn't say any of that. His point is like, the machines are taking over, and poor minorities, disenfranchised, less educated, and young workers aren't worth $15 an hour in most cases, so they should just take less. How much you want to bet if Art Laffer was in that position, he would not be making that argument? If he was somebody who was making less than $15 an hour and wasn't able to live, he wouldn't be like, well, this is a fine system. This is a dandy system. By the way, he's been wrong on everything he's ever said economically, and he's still used as like a primary intellectual on the right, which says a lot about the intellectuals on the right. Trickle-down economics is a fraud. It's a scam. They even pretend like, oh, it won't even increase the deficit when they do it. It's always increased the deficit. Always. It leads to boom-bust cycles. They pretend like it doesn't do that. It's a joke. That, oh, you deregulate, everything will go well. Really? We tried it under Reagan, and it was an abysmal disaster. When he left office, there was a downturn. We tried it under George W. Bush, it was an abysmal disaster. We fucking tried it in the lead-up to the Great Depression, and it was one of the things that led to the Great Depression. This time it'll work. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? Really, it's a ruse to give all the money to the wealthy. That's it. His buddies. Hey, they want more money. I don't know, so let me come up with some intellectual veneer to say, hand them all the money and it'll be okay. Hand the oligarchs and the billionaires all the money and then everything will work out. We promise. Really? The last 47 times we tried it, that didn't happen. Art Laffer. What a joke. These people aren't worth $15 now. They're not worth a living wage. They're human beings. Not only are they human beings, but they're human beings and they work full time. And he still says, you're not worth a living wage. Man, they don't get more loathsome than him. He's maxing out on the loathsome scale. Okay, next. I have good news for everybody, and it bodes well for the future of lefty politics. So I have some good news for everybody, and this definitely bodes well for the future of lefty politics. Support for gay marriage has skyrocketed to record highs. So now it's 70% of the country supports same-sex marriage. 
1997, it was 27%. That's insane. In 2009, it was under 50%. Now look at this. This is maybe even the most surprising part. So it's 83% of Democrats who support gay marriage. By the way, I actually think that's a little low. I'm surprised it's not like 95% for Democrats. 73% of independents support gay marriage. But look at that. Even 55% of Republicans support gay marriage. So a strong majority of Republican voters support gay marriage. That is amazing. Because remember, you go back to like 2010, and it was still less than a majority of the country that was for gay marriage. It was around 2012 that it flipped to a majority of Americans for gay marriage. Look at how fast the times are changing and changing in a positive direction where people are saying, you know what, they deserve equal rights. Yeah, of course. Look at how fast it changed. Listen, this is a thing. I mean, they need to come up with some sort of academic term for this, but there's this thing that happens. After the left wins a victory, within a decade or two, it becomes the duh position for everybody. I mean, it's always been like that, right? So, like, after the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, you fast forward, like, two decades, and everybody's like, if you're against that, you're the dumbest person in the world. Now, granted, listen, there's still a tiny percentage of the population that is against it, and it's definitely overrepresented among elected Republicans who are against stuff like that, but they have to kind of hide it. They can't rep it, and if you do rep it, you're going to get mocked ruthlessly. Like some libertarian party of one of the states tweeted some shit about repeal the Civil Rights Act, and they got dunked on so hard that everybody and their grandma was going after them, because that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. But this is what happens. When the left notches a victory, eventually there's a lot of catch-up that's played by the rest of society to the point where, listen, they've been trying. The right, elected right has been trying to cut Social Security and Medicare, and even a lot, some elected Democrats have been trying to do that. Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, according to the polls, are phenomenally popular. Phenomenally popular. Because when the left notches a victory, eventually, among the people, it's, well, of course we should have had it like that. Of course. Women's suffrage. There were multiple failed attempts to get women's suffrage. Then when we finally got women's suffrage, fast forward a decade or two, and everybody's like, how did we ever not have women's suffrage? This is fucking crazy. So this should give you hope. Everybody thinks something is impossible until you get it, and then they flip to, oh, well, that was inevitable. No, it wasn't inevitable. We had to do the work. We had to get there. But now that we got there, everybody flips. Oh, now it, it was inevitable that that was going to happen. So that should give you a lot of hope. By the way, it also should give you a lot of hope that in other ways this will happen. So now it's a little different when it comes to social issues versus the economy, because on social issues there isn't as much big money lined up against the correct position. There's not as much big money against gay marriage. There's not as much big money against legal weed. There's some, but like when it comes to universal health care, there is a lot of big money lined up against that. You know, so but eventually there will come a time where we get universal health care and then you fast forward a decade or two and it'll be like 70% or 80% or 90% of the country that's like, yeah, of course we need universal health care. Even Republicans will eventually come around. We're a majority. Right now there's, according to one poll, there's like more Republicans support Medicare for all than don't. 
And to be fair, that's one poll. That's an outlier. And most of them, they don't, so on and so forth. But if we actually win it, eventually people will be like, how did we ever not have this? So in other words, this is my message to everybody. Keep fucking fighting. Keep fighting. Don't stop. Change hearts and minds in as intelligent and sympathetic and ethical a way as possible. And then eventually it pays dividends. Because it wasn't that long ago that it seemed insane, the idea of two people of the same sex getting married. And now everybody's like, there's nothing wrong with that at all. There's nothing weird with that at all. That's fine. So now imagine that it happened on weed too. The numbers on weed are through the roof. Again, social issues is a slightly different topic, right? But imagine this on all of our issues. That's the future I envision. And guess what? According to the polls, a lot of people are already kind of there. So just imagine how much more it'll go up when we actually get these things and then you fast forward a decade. We might be looking at 95% of the population that agrees with our basics, whatever it might be. You know, living wage, universal health care, um, free college, eliminating student loan debt, free the nonviolent drug offenders, even ones that right now are not popular, like maybe physician-assisted suicide. Or, or decriminalizing all drugs, whatever it might be. So anyway, keep fighting. This is a great sign, and I hope there's a lot more of this to come on all of the various issues. All right, next. So Matt Gates is in quite a bit of trouble because he's Matt Gates, and he's been doing a lot of creepy shit behind the scenes as all of you know if you followed the story even a little bit. So take a look at this from The Hill. A spokesman for Newsmax said on Monday that the company had no plans to take up a job request from Representative Matt Gates after reports in March suggested he would leave Congress early to take a role with the network. Newsmax has no plans to hire Representative Matt Gates. Brian Peterson, a spokesperson for Newsmax, told The Hill. A source told Reuters that Newsmax never told Gates we were interested. Shortly after Axios reported that the three-term congressman would leave his house seat to pursue a career in television, reports emerged that Gates was being investigated by the Department of Justice over an alleged relationship with a 17-year-old girl, charges he has denied. Now, it gets worse because his associate, Greenberg, I think his name is, he's going down on all sorts of charges, including, like, child sex trafficking and whatnot, and apparently he's squealing to the feds. So whatever dirt he has on Gates, he's probably telling him to get a lighter sentence. So Gates is probably terrified. And remember, the reports came out about him searching for a job in TV right around the time that he knew you're about to get knocked on some creepy sex crimes. So that's when he's like, I should leave Congress and totally get a job in TV. Anyway, let me try to get that nailed down before any of the stories come out. So when Newsmax is telling you no, dog, they have no standards. Nunsies. Zero. Zilch. Nada. You know, and by the way, in the same article, they go on to say, One American News Network also agreed with Newsmax. Oh, God. You lost Newsmax and One American News Network? You're going to be on Twitch in like five and a half minutes. And, but see, that's the thing. Hold on. Let me, let me pump my brakes a little bit here. I'm about to say, he's done so. It's a wrap. But you never know, because we saw what happened with Donald Trump. And like, there's something in a lot of prominent people on the right where their whole worldview is like trigger the lips. And the fa- fact that Matt Gates triggers the libs with his very existence and his sex crimes, they might be like, now I'm pro-sex crime, and now I'm pro-Matt Gates. And so who knows, maybe he starts some shit on Twitch or YouTube, and it blows up. 
simply because they want to trigger the libs. So it's possible. I guess I have a little bit more humility in this segment than I thought I would. The original idea was to tell you that Newsmax rejected him and One American News Network rejected him, and so he's Dunsky's. But what the fuck do I know? Maybe he's not. Maybe there are no rules anymore. Because what did Trump teach us? Trump did teach us one very important lesson. You could just bulldoze through whatever sort of scandal or non-scandal there is about you and just be like, wrong. He got away with the on tape being like, I grab him by the pussy, I don't even wait. He got away with that on tape, and he won an election like a few weeks later. So what that tells you is there are no real rules. There is no real textbook of like, act this way and act that way and you'll get the results. No. A lot of politics is just visceral. And, you know, viscerally now, definitely every lefty, every moderate, and every independent, they look at Gates and they're like, this guy's fucking creepy. Big-headed weirdo doing pervy stuff. But when... What is it, 30%, 40% of the population, that a lot of their thing is like, if you trigger the libs, that's the most important thing. So that alone he might cruise by, but you never know until it happens. I could see him being totally done, or I could see him making some sort of weird comeback, but um, either way, it's funny to watch him squirm, and it's hilarious that Newsmax and One American News Network, they have no standards, and even they rejected this guy. And Trump behind the scenes apparently was like, this, this, we don't like this guy. Sorry, Maddie. I know you're going through a rough patch. By the way, I think it's going to get a lot rougher. All right. Wait, I have more notes for this one. Let me pull up the notes. Let me pull up the notes. Wait, where are my notes for this one? Okay, here we go. is a story that will probably make you giggle. So the mirror reported, seething Trump fumed, how am I losing to a mental retard when shown Biden polls? That is something. So they go on to explain in the article. So this um, revelation came from a book by a White House reporter for the Wall Street Journal named Michael Bender. Um, the name of his book is, frankly, We Did Win This Election, The Inside Story of How Trump Lost. It's going to be published in August. There's a little snippet that came out. Um, there's other juicy stuff in there, too. Trump had become convinced that Democrats were definitely going to switch out Joe Biden for another candidate like Hillary Clinton or Michelle Obama at the last minute. Because he was like, yeah, mentally he's not there. They're going to have to do it, and so they're going to switch him out. Now, clearly they didn't, but he was totally convinced of that. And in fact, he held on to the idea so strongly that he used it as a reason to hold off on heavy spending against Biden earlier in the election. Oh, my God. 
So that false belief may have really, really, really hurt him. Couldn't maybe it cost him the election. Wow. But he said, how am I losing to this guy who's a mental, I guess I already said the word, but mental R word. Let's be a little more politically correct here. I can't answer that question, Donnie. I can't answer that question. There's a pandemic and at the time effectively a depression. So your handling of the pandemic was abysmal. You talked about injecting bleach and like somehow getting UV light inside of your body. Like what are you going to do? Spread your cheeks and lay on the beach. So you had an abysmal response to the virus. um, And you know, your response on the economy was terrible. Probably the biggest piece of legislation Trump passed his entire time in office was the 2017 tax cuts and 83% of the benefits went to the top 1%. Maybe that's one of the reasons you lost. He campaigned as this pseudo-economic populist, and then he governed like he's George W. Bush. Maybe that has something to do with why you lost. So it turns out the material harm that you're doing costs you, of course. Your terrible leadership costs you, of course. And it really was just an anti-Trump election. Now, Biden underperformed kind of embarrassingly, and he barely got in by the skin of his teeth against an abysmal failure. But, like, he didn't have to do much. The conservatives were right with their caricature of Biden as like campaigning from his basement. Pretty much. COVID was the best thing that happened to him. And even his own advisors admit it. Politically, it made it so he won. COVID didn't happen, he probably wouldn't have won. But he did. And so it, it gives me great pleasure to think of Trump being like, I can't believe I'm losing to this guy. He can't even get out a full sentence. He's not there mentally anymore. And I'm losing to him. I mean, it sort of makes up for like the the 2016 race where Trump beat Hillary, even though I would argue a lot of times in the debates, Hillary was definitely with it more and she would say things that were more accurate. And he probably thought I might actually lose to Hillary. He beat Hillary, but then he lost to Biden. He definitely thought I'm going to beat Biden. So it's a little bit of like a a little bit of karma, I guess, is, is a way you can describe it. But I'm probably not going to read this book, but this, uh, this little story did give me quite a bit of joy. Here's one way to get people to get a vaccine. There's this new program that's being rolled out. The New York Times says adults will be able to claim a free marijuana joint when they receive a COVID-19 vaccine in Washington state. The promotion called Joints for Jabs is part of the state's push to increase vaccinations. So this is definitely a first, not just in the sense that it's weed being given out for free, but also in the sense that it's something that's still federally illegal that's being given out for free by a state. So you just better hope nobody sues, because if they sue, Washington State will 100% lose the case, because it's not open to interpretation. We have the supremacy clause of the Constitution, which says that federal law overrides state law, and under federal law, weed's still legal, so of course you can't give it out for free at the state level. So you just got to hope nobody sues. Uh, But if nobody sues and they keep doing this, This is badass. That's really cool. So we're at the point now where just over 50% of the U.S. population, I don't know if it's adults or the entire population, 
but just over 50% are fully vaccinated against COVID. That's great. That's wonderful. Um, I don't know what we need to hit herd immunity. Is it 70? Is it 80? Is it 90%? I really don't know. But, uh, and I, I have no clue if we'll actually get there. I hope we get there, but I don't know if we'll actually get there. We're at the point now where pretty much everybody who, like, wanted a vaccine has gotten it. So everybody who's holding out, it's no longer like a laziness thing. It's sort of like a you-just-don't-want-it thing. And so now you got all these states rolling out these different ideas to try to get people to get the vaccine. So I liked what the Ohio governor did. He's actually a Republican, believe it or not, and he gave a million dollars away to I don't know how many people, three people, five people, something like that, ten people, I don't remember. But he gave a million dollars away, and it's like this lottery. If you get the vaccine, you're automatically enrolled in the lottery, and then you could get a million dollars. That's a good idea. I think you would get, you could get people to get the vaccine if you offer them 200 bucks for the vaccine, even 100 bucks for the vaccine. Or if you want to go nuts, 500 bucks for the vaccine. Um, I, I haven't seen anybody do a program like that, but that should be on the table. That should be in consideration. The only one I didn't like was Gavin Newsom's because Gavin Newsom's, the money was ridiculous. The money was like, I forget how much money, but it may have been like, let me look it up while I'm talking to you guys right now. I hope I could find it. I might not be able to find it. Gavin Newsom, California vaccine lottery. Let's see what comes up. Um, I was going to say it might have been like $100 million or something crazy like that. Let me see. Okay, so we're going to the Sacramento Bee. So some people got 50000 Some people got $1.5 million. Some people got $50,000. Um, oh, maybe, I, maybe the headline I read was misleading on it. Maybe he wasn't giving out like $100 million to one person or something. Maybe in total it's like $100 million and a bunch of people are getting $1.5 million. So they say 15 people will get $50,000 next Friday. This is an old article from June 4th. The 10 grand prizes of $1.5 million will be awarded on June 15th. State officials drew, a pool, drew from a pool of more than 21.5 million vaccinated California residents. Okay, so maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the headline I read was misleading. But I had read some headline that was like, Newsom's going to give away $100 million or something like that. And I was like, that's way too much. I thought what that meant was like the main prize for one of the people who gets the vaccine is like $100 million or whatever it was, $50 million or $10 Because my point was going to be, you don't need to give away that much in order to get people to get, get the vaccine. The $1 million thing from... Um, the Ohio governor is good enough, but it looks like I was wrong in my interpretation of what Newsom was doing. So maybe I do support it. I don't know. Um, I need to know more of the specifics on it. But yeah, generally, I like these ideas. Anything to get more people vaccinated. Um, listen, I researched everything inside and out before I got the vaccination because I wanted to know what I was putting in my body. And bottom line is, it's safe. It's effective. It works. And there's no reason not to get it. And understand something. I'm the harshest critic of Big Pharma you could ever find. I really am. But just because I am doesn't mean that antibiotics don't work or that vaccines don't work. You know, they can both be terrible, corrupt, and, you know, greedy, so on and so forth, while still providing some semblance of products that work. And that's what the studies show. I believe the studies. Um, Pick whichever vaccine you want, man. You know, I got the bad boy vaccine. I got the Johnson & Johnson because it's the one shot. And I got it before the news about how there were a very tiny number of people who got blood clots from it. It was all women of a certain age. 
And uh, come to find out that birth control gives blood clots to way more women. So when they paused it, I don't even know if that made sense to do that, but they wanted to double check to make sure it's okay. They, then they brought it right back out. And the way that vaccine works is it's the same way they do like the regular flu vaccine. What they did is they took an adenovirus and they made it mimic COVID-19, injected into your body. It's a dead version of the virus and your body gets the immunity to COVID-19. So that's the one I got. If you want to get the old school traditional vaccine style one, get the Johnson and Johnson or the AstraZeneca, although that's not, I don't think that's approved yet in the U.S. If you want to get the mRNA one, the two-shot one, that's Moderna and Pfizer, get the mRNA one. But for the love of God, get one of them, please. Because I'm telling you, the real scandal is not like, oh, the vaccine is causing problems. The real scandal is that Big Pharma is blocking the creation of global vaccines and blocking the creation of generic vaccines that the whole world can use to vaccinate everybody against COVID. That's the real scandal. So everybody needs to keep everything in perspective. Um, But... Yeah, there you have it. Free weed with the COVID vaccine. I think that this will actually get a decent number of people to get the vaccine in the same way that the money incentives will, in the same way that almost any incentive will. I don't think it takes that much to get people to be like, all right, no big deal. Even if, they're, even if they are somewhat anti-vax, I think it's possible to get 70 or 80% of the population vaccinated, and that might be enough. All right, next. This is hilarious because um, it's going to be so ineffectual, but Axios is reporting, a super PAC closely aligned with Mitch McConnell is prepared to intervene in GOP primaries and challenge Trump's endorsements. So this is hilarious. Um, The thing that people are concerned about, and this is a fair concern, is that Trump is obviously going to endorse all the Trumpian Republicans running in primaries. Of course he's going to do that. But the concern is that all the Trumpian uh, Congress people and senators and whatever, people who are running for these seats, they're all going to be like Marjorie Taylor Greene. And there's going to be people who are drunk on QAnon and um, just total idiots. And that that would fundamentally be unproductive for the needs and the wants of the establishment and the corporations. That's the concern. That's the concern. Um, That, in other words, the fringe became too fringy. And so Mitch McConnell is thinking, well, I'll just counter-endorse, and I'll have a super PAC endorse the more establishment-type Republicans, who are crazy, but not Marjorie Taylor Greene crazy. And um, the reason why this is hilarious is Mitch McConnell's approval rating is like 20-something percent, or at most 30-something percent. Trump, despite all of his flaws, is way more popular than Mitch McConnell. The idea that McConnell can, like, save the day and there will be this GOP civil war and it will be, like, 50-50 and McConnell will win some and Trump will win some. No! The Trumpian ones will probably win across the board because he's the most popular Republican figure. So it's just funny to me that, like, what, Mitch McConnell thinks he's going to leverage his popularity to fight back against the Trump wave? You're not popular. Everybody hates you. What are you talking about? And, by the way, I think the most important point is this. There is no difference on policy substance between the McConnell side and the Trump side. They're all exactly in the same place on deregulation, on tax cuts for the wealthy, on endless war, 
to be fair to Trump, he mouthed anti-war stuff, but he kept the wars going. Even his withdrawal wasn't a full withdrawal from Afghanistan. So there is no difference, except Trump's people are more outwardly crazy and like embracing QAnon and all these conspiracies and stuff. So McConnell wants to get to the point where we still have establishment Republicans who are the same on policy, but they don't do the stop the steal stuff and they get over the fact that Biden won. Trump doesn't want that. So it looks like there's a GOP civil war, but I don't think it'll be much of a civil war. I think it'll be a bloodbath. This is what happens when you have zero popularity, as Mitch McConnell does. So curious to see how this unfolds. First of all, I hope it does unfold. Second of all, curious to see how it goes. And I'm curious to see ultimately what happens. So if Trump wins this GOP civil war and defeats all McConnell's candidates, how do the Marjorie Taylor Greene types fare against the Democrats? I don't know, because the Democrats don't believe in fucking anything. (laughs) So you have people who believe in nothing against absolute psychos who are drunk on QAnon and are wrong about absolutely everything. Either way, I don't like that. Okay, final story of the day, y'all. So let's have a little bit of fun. Uh, there's this new poll that was just released from released from Ledger, 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 whatever. It's a polling company, and they asked, "How much time do you spend watching pornography in an average week?" They're asking Americans this question. Um, here are the results. Less than 20 minutes is 61 percent. Between 20 and 59 minutes per week is 29 percent. Between one and seven hours is 10%, and more than seven hours is 1%. So let's break this down. People who say they watch it less than 20 minutes, 61%. The less than 20 minutes per week thing, I feel, I'm surprised. Like, how is it not 100% that fits in that? Like, I get if you're watching, like, 20 minutes on the dot of porn per week, I get it that, you know, that's okay, right? 20 to 59 minutes, 59 minutes is a long time for a week. 59 minutes of porn, 29%, guys, one to seven hours. Who's watching this much porn? One to seven hours, 10%. Who can find, like, two or three hours in a week to watch porn? And what are you doing? Like, when people watch porn, how much of it is, like, literally watching? Like, yes, I'm watching this, and I'm slowly getting horned up. Like, do you sit there and watch it? And, like, are you, does it take you 15 minutes to get hard? And then from then, does it take you another 15 before you touch it the first time? I'm just curious, because this seems really bizarre to me. I don't even believe the, the 1% that said more than seven hours, I don't believe you. Nobody watches more than seven hours of porn in one week. More than an hour a day? Uh, I'm floored by that. So anyway, part of the reason that I'm talking about this is sort of to call bullshit. I'm calling bullshit on the one to seven hour people, and I'm calling bullshit on the seven plus hour people. And even a lot that are watch it like 50 minutes in a week, that's a lot of fucking time to watch porn, man. I, I mean, I guess if I'm trying to make the opposite argument here, 
lot of people are unemployed. A lot of people got their hours cut because of COVID and, and the reverberating effects within the economy. So I guess if you have nothing but free time, like, but I would have, that's 29% watching between 20 and 59 minutes. The top end of that is getting to a, that's a lot of time, dog. That's a lot of time. Yeah, I don't know, man. This seems, um, I think people are lying, but they're lying in the way I wouldn't expect. Like, I would expect people to lie like, porn? I didn't even know porn. I didn't even watch porn. What are you talking about, porn? porn? I never heard of that. What does that mean? Is that a kind of corn? Porn. What? People aren't lying in that way. They're lying in the like, not only do I watch it, I watch 47 hours a week. I'm one horny mofo. By the way, there was another poll. I don't have this queued up for you guys. But there was another poll that asked people the type of which sites do they go to. Pornhub was number one by like a mile and a half. I started laughing because one of like two percent of the population goes to Reddit for porn. That's weird. And then there's another like two percent or one percent go to. I love this. Porn.com. That without a doubt is like boomers and silent generation. There's nobody Gen X and younger going to Porn.com. And by the way, this also made it funnier to me. It's in all caps. See, everything else is not, and then for porn.com, it's all caps. Porn.com! I literally think that that's all like boomers in silent generation who forgot they have the caps lock on, and they're like, I would like to see some boobies, please. Porn.com. I'm surprised pornography.com didn't make the list, or like nakedladies.com didn't make the list. So anyway, um... I guess Americans are a little more freaky than I thought. I don't know. You guys tell me. Do you think anybody's actually watching one-plus hours per week? I guess I could see, like, the most fervent porn watcher watches, like, two hours a week. I could see that. But I don't know if anybody's watching over two hours. If they are, i got to ask, like, what the fuck is this? What's going on? Like, what, what are you doing? But I don't know. You guys tell me. Am, am I right in saying that a lot of this is bullshit on the, on the higher end? Because I find it hard to imagine that anybody's watching that much porn. All right, guys. Out of time, baby. Out of show. Love you very much. Remember, Joe Rogan, um, I believe I'm on the 16th, June 16th, but there will be no show. I'll be traveling before that. There will be no shows next week, but I'll still have some stuff uploading on the YouTube channel. Anyway, love you guys. Have a good one. Peace.